So, along with others preaching in Skipton's pulpits and lecterns this morning, we're invited to consider the first of our designated I am sayings of Jesus from John's Gospel, as we heard it read just now. I am the way and the truth and the life. Week one of a new series of sermons as part of the Do You Know Him initiative, now unbelievably about 18 months old. But before we look at this specific text, I want to try and just trace back a little bit of the origins of the phrase, I am. Because of course, although Jesus takes it and applies it to himself, it is used extensively in the Old Testament. And first of all, it's used in conversation between God and Moses at the scene of the burning bush in the desert when Moses is called and commissioned by God to lead the Israelite people out of slavery. And as you recall, he was a very reluctant participant in that project. And one of the reasons, one of the questions with which he challenged God <coughs> and his own uh, suitability for the task was to ask God, well, what will happen when they ask who sent me? What will I be able to tell them? And so, for the first usage in scripture of this phrase, God's reply to Moses was, tell them that I am who I am has sent you. I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And the sense of that in the uh, Hebrew language, I understand, is not just in the present tense. It is, I am who I am. I am who I have always been, and I am who I will always will be. It was a special designation which God attributed to himself to embody himself within that phrase. That, of course, wasn't the end of the discussion with Moses, and when all other arguments failed, he simply said to God, oh God, please send somebody else. And uh, some of us perhaps have been in that place as well. The phrase is also used frequently in the Old Testament in God's reassurances to his people that I will be with you, I am with you. Same terminology. It's a phrase which uh, emphasizes the present way that God is with his people in the moment and will always be with his people. And Jesus picks up this special terminology and applies it to himself, to the consternation of the Jewish authorities, uh, because they are challenging him in the pages of the New Testament uh, as to where his authority comes from, who does he think he is. And uh, Jesus uses the phrase in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And that, of course, to the Jewish religious authorities was nothing short of blasphemy. You're only a youngster, you're not yet 50 years old, they reply. Who do you think you are to make such a claim? And so as the gospel narratives proceed, this phrase, I am, is loaded with significance. Loaded. And each time of the seven I am sayings that we're set to consider in the coming weeks, Jesus adds a further dimension of understanding. So across the seven sayings, which we'll be thinking about, uh, there is, if you like, a theology of the person of Jesus, 
built up cumulatively as we explore these expressions. Now, don't be put off by the word theology, because theology is primarily something to live rather than something to study as an academic discipline. It is that as well, and no apology needs to be made for it. But theology is really the practice of living in the presence of God. And the I am sayings give us multiple guidelines for what that might look like in actual practice. So cumulatively then, these sayings, these I am sayings, compel us again to ask ourselves the question, who is this man? Who is this man Jesus who fills the pages of the New Testament and to whom so much is foreshadowed, of whom so much is foreshadowed in the Old? And indeed, it foreshadows the question which our theme has been exploring all these past months. Do you know him? We ask ourselves that question as well as asking each other. So Jesus is making amazing and bold claims by repeatedly using this phrase, I am. C.S. Lewis famously said that uh, after reading the accounts of the life of Christ, we had to conclude either he was mud or he was bad or he was God. He was deluded and, and, and mentally ill, if you like, and living in a fantasy world, uh, or he was deliberately setting out to mislead, or he really was who he claimed to be, the one sent from God. And that led C.S. Lewis to make the further observation that if Christianity, via the person of Jesus, uh, is built on a lie or a delusion, then it is of no importance at all. It's just a puff in the wind. But if it is true, it is of supreme importance. And he said memorably, the one thing Christian faith cannot be is of moderate importance. And I sometimes wonder if we in our churches have made our Christian faith, and particularly naming it as being rooted in the present Christ amongst us and in our life together, if we've diminished that to something of moderate importance, something which we pay lip service to, but which doesn't necessarily impel our lives and the way we live our lives day by day. And lest you feel got at, let me reassure you that I challenge myself with that more than I would challenge any of you. And so says Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. So let's consider the word way. And way as a metaphor for the way we live life also has Old Testament roots. We've touched on a couple of them. Psalm 1 contrasts two ways of living. The end of the psalm declares that the way of sinners is like chaff. It's worthless and it's blown away. But the way of the righteous is like a tree rooted and fruitful. The old English word for tree is trial. T-R-E-O-W. And that also is the root origin of the word truth. The deeply rooted, proven idea. So we have already a link between the ways, as described by the psalmist, and the truth, as exemplified in this deeply rooted, fruitful tree. And indeed in the life 
which is, a, which is shown in the fruit that the tree bears. And then in Isaiah chapter 30, uh, which we also heard, the idea of I am, I am with you, is again linked to the way. God as a guiding voice, a voice behind us as we face all the dilemmas of life, saying to his people, this is the way, follow it. God has not left us to flounder helplessly. He has provided a way, the way, in Jesus. So he's urging, is Isaiah, he's urging his people to change their self-destructive drive, which is repeated so often through the Old Testament as we scan the pages of its history. Turn away from your drive to self-destruction and follow the way that I am setting before you. So finally then, to John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. This phrase, of course, comes as part of an extended conversation, the longest conversation between Jesus and his disciples in any of the Gospels, um, encompassing chapters 13 to 17. Uh, it begins uh, in the upper room after the foot washing, and it continues on the way to Gethsemane. And Jesus is telling them the truths. If any of you listened to uh, the morning service on Radio 4, you would have heard the preacher from Glasgow University talking about uh, the phrase spoken, I think, by Jack Nicholson in uh, the film A, Good, A Few Good Men, uh, in which he said, well, I could tell you the truth, but you couldn't handle it. And in a sense, this is what Jesus is saying in these chapters. He's telling them as much as his disciples can cope with. But even right at the outset of our reading, it's actually more than they can cope with. And it's John, it, it's uh, Thomas rather, it's Thomas who evokes this statement from Jesus. Because Jesus has uh, said that he's going to prepare a place, all those words we're relatively familiar, from, uh, familiar with, sadly often from funerals I suppose in a way, but then Thomas pulls Jesus up short, doubting Thomas we call him, down to earth Thomas I prefer to call him, Thomas who wants to get it straight. So Jesus says, you know the way and the place that I'm going to. And Thomas says, hang on, hang on. No, we don't. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way then? And Jesus then responds with this well-known classic uh, affirmation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you cannot follow the way of Jesus just by reading a book. On the other hand, Reading a good book about following Jesus can offer us real nourishment, encouragement, and challenge in embracing and living his way for ourselves. And I have never found a better book on the business of following Jesus in the way than this volume by Eugene Peterson called simply The Jesus Way. I've read it three times in its entirety. I've read bits of it more often than that, and each time... I gain new insights and, and, and fresh challenges from its pages. Uh, and I do urge everybody to read a book about following Jesus because it will enrich and build your faith. Now, an interesting thing about this book, it's about 300 and odd pages, three and two, yeah, just short of 300 pages, but the first two thirds of it is all about the Old Testament. It's all about Old Testament characters who in different ways prefigure the way 
of Jesus. For example, there's an extended study of Abraham. Abraham who exercised faith against all odds. The way of Jesus is a way of trust, of sacrificial faith, which will endure testing. There's an extended study of Moses and the first five books of the Old Testament and a consideration of story or testimony. This is how God has worked in my life, in my community. It's rooted in history. Peterson is very impatient with those of us who tend to dis dismiss genealogies as just long, boring lists that we can't pronounce. Because he says these root our faith in real life, real places, real historical figures. The faith is something which is incarnational. It's rooted in geography and place. Authentic faith rooted. There's an extended study of David. David, the Old Testament master, perhaps, of prayer and worship. But in all his prayers and his worship, very far from being that perfect figure. Not a replica of Jesus, yes, described as a man after God's own heart, but deeply flawed, nevertheless. And every one of us who seeks to follow the way of Jesus, we are deeply flawed. I've sometimes heard people say, I don't go to receive the elements of communion because I'm not good enough. That realization is actually the best possible qualification to go and receive those elements of communion because none of us is in that sense good enough. Time for a little digression, I think, in a lighter moment. Um, I've just returned a couple of weeks ago from uh, an eight-day uh, retreat, pilgrimage to Galilee. Went with Eileen uh, on an experience uh, led by Bishop John Pritchard, a deeply moving and uh, telling experience, and not least because of its moments of humour, because he's a great raconteur, is Bishop John. And he told us about the, uh, the three priests who were away on a retreat. And uh, towards the end of the time, they really felt that their faith had been deepened, that they could be open and honest with each other. They didn't need to pretend anymore that they were holier than thou, better than they really were. And so they decided in a little triplet they would confess their sins to each other. And so the first priest made his confession and he confessed that he was far too fond of the bottle and that he had a constant craving for alcohol. And each night when he was in his study by himself, he was tempted to take that bottle out of his cabinet and have too much to drink. And, and he was uh, very sorry about this and, and confessed it to his, uh, his fellow priests. The second priest well said, well, yes, I have similar issues when it comes to lustful thoughts. And when I'm alone in my study at night, I'm very tempted to switch on the internet and, uh, and look at things that I shouldn't look at. I, I struggle with this all the time. The third priest, meanwhile, remained quiet. And then the other two looked up to him and saw he had a big grin on his face. And so they said, brother, what's your besetting sin? And he said, gossip. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting home. <laughs> But we don't have to be perfect in order for God to call us into the Jesus way. So that's Abraham and Moses, Abraham's faith, Moses' story, David's prayer and worship. Elijah. Elijah was profoundly countercultural, had to stand against the prevailing culture of his time. And if we would follow the Jesus way, so must we. 
there's an amazing, just to return to Galilee for a moment, um, there is an amazing fresco in a Franciscan chapel on the top of the um, Mount of Transfiguration, allegedly. Other mountains are available. But on the, in this particular chapel, there's a fresco of Elijah calling down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice that he drenched in water. You remember the, 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 the story? So over there in the picture, uh, the, there's a heap of steaks, fresh as the moment they were cut. But here, just in front of Elijah, the heap of steaks is consumed by fire and uh, Elijah stepped back and it's almost cartoon version. His eyes are raised to the top of his head and it's as if he's saying, wow, I didn't expect that. But Elijah stood against the prevailing culture and when he prayed to God, he, as we sometimes are, was absolutely astonished at the response he received. Peterson also devotes a chapter to Isaiah of Jerusalem, sometimes called First Isaiah. Isaiah, whose main theme is holiness. You remember his calling in the temple into a way of holiness into which God introduced him and invited him. And he's the one who pleads with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as we heard in that uh, passage that was read to us before. Uh, the threat, yes, the warning of judgment, but a way, a way out of that, a way of holiness. And finally, he calls as his witness to the way of Jesus what we sometimes call the second Isaiah, Isaiah of the exile. Isaiah who speaks about the servant and those servant songs in Isaiah chapter 50 and thereabouts. And if you allow me, I'll just read a short paragraph. Paragraphs don't really do justice to the big pictures that the author paints. But let me just read this about servant ministry. The servant serves God. That goes without saying. But the distinctive thing that comes into focus in the servant songs is that the servant serves God by serving the sinner, by taking the sinner's place, by taking the consequences of sin, doing for the sinner what she or he is unable to do for themselves. This is the gospel way to deal with what is wrong in the world, to deal with this multifaceted sin cancer that is mutilating and disables us. And whether the wrong is intentional or inadvertent, the servant neither avoids it in revulsion nor attacks it by force of words or arms. Instead, the servant embraces, accepts, suffers in the sense of submitting to the conditions and accepting the consequences. The servant personally takes the wrongdoer and the wrong to the altar of sacrifice and makes an offering of him or her on it. The servant says to his brothers and sisters, only God can save you. You don't think you can go to him? I'll go for you, or at least let me go with you. These are insights to the nature of our calling into the way of Jesus. Faith against the odds, an authentic story of God at work in our lives, prayer and worship despite our imperfections, profoundly countercultural to the way the world does things, a way of holiness rather than success, a way of servanthood, and compelling Old Testament witnesses to each of these features of the way, finding their fulfillment, their completion in Jesus. 
So all of these, the writer claims, are signposts pointing forward to the one who would fulfill each of their callings perfectly, not just pointing to the way, but one who embodies the way. So then in these chapters in John, Jesus himself fills out what that means. Here, within these chapters, there are many phrases, many sayings, which point to practical aspects of the way of Jesus. Here are ten I've selected pretty much at random, all from these chapters of John's Gospel. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I give a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so also you must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine keeper. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be perfectly one. Each one of those phrases and each one of those uh, sections of these chapters in John, chapters 13 to 17, they reward diligent and careful study and meditation as we contemplate how far we are following the Jesus way. I remember at Sunday school singing a song about the way and the truth and the life. It went something like this, I am the way, the truth and the life, that's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no growing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. And the relationship between way and truth and life is, is actually very intimate, very close. And we could express it in this way, perhaps. It's from the going that the knowing follows. And it's from the knowing that the growing follows. It's in responding to the call of Jesus that we come to know him. We don't come to know him well. In fact, we cannot come to know him well without following him, without realizing that he is the way that we follow. And so when we pose that question, do you know him, the question really means, are you following the Jesus way? For the longer and closer you follow, the better you will come to know him. And some of us perhaps need to rethink what following Jesus really means. And I offer you a last thought from Eugene Peterson's book, which by now you've realized is a major source of inspiration for these thoughts. He speaks of a, an occasion when someone was visiting them. He lived in, uh, near Vancouver in, um, in, in, in the northwestern part of, uh, the, of North America. 
Uh, and the, the landscape in that part of the world is, is incredible, spectacular. And a friend was visiting from Texas, very different landscape, very different in many ways. And Eugene Peterson took this friend for a drive, but became very frustrated that as he was pointing out particular mountain tops, uh, a particular waterfall, other incredibly dramatic landscape features, his companion seemed to be glued to the map, which lay open on her lap in the passenger seat. And the reason he was frustrated was because when he asked her what she was doing, she said, well, I just want to know where we are. So he then posed the question, in what way do you more truly discover where you are by careful study of a map, looking down at it, or by being present in the drama of the landscape which surrounds you? Following the map, I suppose, is useful if you want to get from A to B as efficiently and safely as possible. Staying huddled over the map as you speed through a dramatic landscape may protect you from bad weather and wrong turnings and losing the route, but is it really doing justice to the journey? So sometimes our knowledge of Jesus might be a bit like our knowledge of reading a map. The product of study and analysis reliant on the research or the stories of other people. We've mapped out his life and times. We've placed him in history and we can file him away along with other great and influential figures of the past and put him in his place in our minds. But we cannot truly say we know Jesus unless we leave, as it were, the safety of the car and the map and make our way more slowly through a landscape, much of which is unknown, and may well hold excitement, but also fears and dangers and adventures and awe and wonder and terror all mixed up together. But which journey is more authentically the way? Studying the map or being present in the landscape? The one may be more efficient, but at the cost of missing the very purpose of life itself, life in its fullness, as Jesus said, from following the way, leading to the truth, leading to life. For Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he also said, and he also says, follow me. Amen.